Aloha all, this is Catherine Cruz. You are tuned to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. You know, it was around this time last year that Kuhia Lewis came up with an idea to help Hawaiian vendors who normally would have sold their wear at the Merry Monarch Hula Festival. You know, when the event was canceled, Pop-Up Makeke was born. But the executive director of the Council for Native Hawaiian Advancement never dreamed it would become so successful that Amazon would come calling. The company recently purchased property here on Oahu. Uh, we talked to Kuhio Lewis about how this deal came about. You know, the reality, Catherine, is that we had gone through season two of Papa Makeke, and there were points in in the operation where we were getting thousands of orders a day, and it became obvious to us that this was outgrowing our capacity locally. And, you know... As I had mentioned in previous conversations, we Amazon had reached out to us. They reached out to us. They wanted to work with us. There was there was something that they were aspiring to, having an authentic connection to Hawaii-based products. Uh, we kind of tabled it because I wanted to, to the degree that we could keep it local, and we thought we could live up to the demand. Well, we were wrong, and so <laughs> okay. we uh, we outgrew our capacity, and so now it's time for the Amazon robots to take over. Okay, so it's going to take it to another level, but you're okay with that. Well, I mean, I think Amazon's a great they're, they're a great partner. They're also establishing themselves locally here in the islands, as we know. And so it's going to help where we need them. We are going to keep many aspects of the pop-up makeke 100% local, but the fulfillment where orders go out in a timely manner and in, in a manner in which is conducive to the customer demand is critical. And unfortunately, the capacity locally in our islands for that type of fulfillment doesn't exist. We are working where we've been hunting for someone that can do that, but it's reached a level where I think uh, Amazon is the right partner at the right time. And while we look at how we can, you know, build our local capacity. But you will still get a cut, though, won't you, for the council? There's no- there's no cut per so there's no fee first of all so it's subsidized so we go out and we seek support from various various foundations from federal government from county and we ask them to help subsidize this this is a program uh it's not a it's a non-profit making venture it is run by a non-profit uh so it's not where we get a cut per se but the, the operational cost that facilitates the Papa Makeke is subsidized through third-party contributions. What does this new relationship with Amazon mean for local vendors? Well, it means that they're going to have an opportunity to be on a much bigger stage. And so they are going to get exposure beyond the confi- the uh, you know than what the Papa Makeke had provided. And Papa Makeke did help many of them grow their brand. You know, we have customer base now in the tens of thousands we we had over a, we had sold over a hundred thousand products in that short window, and over two million dollars went into the pockets of these small businesses, and so what this will mean is that the opportunity to work with a worldwide company with that level of you know reach is going to take these businesses who are ready for the opportunity to an even greater level. And so if there are vendors out there that are interested in re-upping and, yeah. or new ones that want to uh, jump in on Pop-Up Makeke, what do they need to know? So first of all, everything is on our website. We are accepting vendor applications right now. So it's, open, it's an open call. We're not restricting it to anyone to apply. We will be going through a process. Part of that process is, you know, looking at what, we learned from the last couple of seasons and you know there's there's vendors that are ready for this step and there's vendors that we want to help get to this phase but this is a huge opportunity for them to take their business to another level so not only will we be bringing back all of the things that Papa Makeke offered the heavy promotion the opportunity to be on television and marketed digitally around the world it's adding Amazon and their reach to the mix as well now, in uh, seasons previous, uh, you know, there was some CARES money, some help that came from the counties. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's not going to be there in the future, and so this is right. just another way to deal with the shipping. So the structure of the Pablo Makeke 
is slightly shifting to where we are looking at wholesale buying. So this, again, for those vendors that are ready for a wholesale buying process, we will buy the products from them, and we will sell, we will sell them online at the retail price. The money that is generated from that is helping to keep the pop-up makeke and the promotional components and the operations afloat. But there is also a consignment component where if you're not ready perhaps for that scale where you're ready to wholesale, sell us 500 products, there's a consignment where we will help you sell. Um, so there, it, it's all, all of this is outlined on the application so that vendors understand the two different categories in which they can apply to. But yeah, we're moving towards a model where the pop-up makeke is more self-sustaining, not dependent on, on any kind of subsidy, and allows these small businesses to reach a much bigger customer base. No, I was able to visit the pop-up makeke store over at Pro Ridge. Awesome. You know, that Mana Ola, uh, you know, was generous enough to, uh, you know, use some of the space to showcase yep. the product. I mean, that's just been, you know, a really nice storefront to be able to go to if people wanted to, you know, pick up the product and look at it before they made the purchase. So that was a beautiful partnership. You know, we know that there are still customers that prefer to touch, try on, you know, take a closer look at the products. So that's something that we will definitely explore is uh, – making sure that if that is an available option where someone can go into a retail space, that that's, that's still an option. But a lot of the details and whether that's going to happen in this upcoming season is still in the air. But that is something that we're aware is that there's still a strong customer base that really needs that added feel, touch, use their senses to see if that's the product they want. Now, this third season, it starts when? We're looking at June early June, and it'll run through probably the summer. Um, it, it all depends on the number of, of things. One is the, you know, the funds that we're able to raise. Again, this is a nonprofit venture. It's not a for-profit, so it's not like we're out to make money, but we are in the process of seeking support for the pop-up makeke. It's productions, it's promotion, it's the airtime, as well as offsetting some costs that will be passed on by way of fulfillment. So is there a deadline that vendors need to know about, uh, you know, in order to get in the game for selection? There isn't a deadline, but we will start selecting vendors in early April. So within a week, we're going to start pulling a committee together to start reviewing those applications. So the sooner they get it in, the greater their chances at knowing whether they're, they'll be in the pop-up Makiki. Okay, and the opportunity to uh, get connected to Amazon. The reach is worldwide. Yep. You must feel pretty good, though, yeah, knowing just how this whole thing started and knowing that you've been able to help the local businesses here. Yeah, Catherine, you know, this came by way of an idea. We were simply thinking to ourselves, how do we help all of these small businesses who just got canceled out by the pandemic? You know, there's no Made in Hawaii Festival, there's no craft fairs, there's no Mary Monarch Fair. There's all of these small businesses who, this is an important part of their livelihood. We knew that that was disrupted. So it started with an idea and I went out and I sought support from some people and I floated the idea, put it on paper. And our first con contributor was Hawaii Community Foundation, who loved the idea. They knew that it, you know, they, they didn't know what the outcome would be, but it was a small $10,000 donation. And then we went to Hawaii Tourism Authority, who them two were scratching their heads, thinking, how do we keep our economy alive through the pandemic? So they contributed. And then Hawaiian Airlines stepped up and offered free shipping. And since then, it has blossomed into what we have now, which is uh, you know, thousands of orders. We're going out the door during the last season, millions of dollars going into the pockets of our, our small businesses so that they could keep food on the table. And just Hawaii products being shared across the world, around the world. We had customers from every continent that was ordering from Papa Makeke. So it's a, it felt really good to know that Hawaii, you know, even through the hardship that the world was facing, was embraced in so many different parts of the world. Well, I know you've probably heard it, but I'm going to say it again. Mahalo and aloha, Kuhio Lewis. 
Thank you. Thank you for what you've uh, done for these small businesses. We were talking to Kuhil Lewis of the Council of Native Hawaiian Advancement, talking about the new alliance with the shipping giant Amazon and the next phase for Pop-Up Makeke, the new go-to marketplace for Hawaii products. We'll have links on how to sign up on our website. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to enjoy the art and museum spaces on Palhana Friday evenings until 9 p.m. Admission tickets at honolulumuseum.org. When you listen to HPR, there's a sense that we're moving forward together. That's how public radio works. We give you the news and ideas you need to make sense of the world around you and the ability to make decisions about what's next. Step by step, day by day, the partnership that unites us moves us all forward. As we approach our spring fund drive, help us in that shared mission. Become a new sustaining member at hawaiipublicradio.org. This is the conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. It's time now for your backyard quiz. Tomorrow is a holiday for government offices, schools, and some businesses, which will close in honor of Prince Jonah Kuhio Kalani Aneole. The royal was born on the Garden Isle on March 26, 1871, and named for both grandfathers, Kuhio Kalanianeole, a high chief of Kilo, and Jonah Piikoi, high chief of Kauai. Sadly, he was orphaned after his father died in 1878 and then mother in 1888. His maternal aunt, Queen Kapiolani, adopted Jonah Kuhio, thus conferring the title of prince upon the youngster. His early education was completed at the exclusive Royal School and Punahou School. His studies continued in California at St. Matthew School, a private military school, and then further afield to England, where he studied at the Royal Agricultural College for graduating from a business school. His journey from prince to statesman could cover another quiz or two. But for today, we would like to know the name of Prince Kohio's wife. Call 941-3689 or call 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nayreet Hawaii, which represents real estate businesses committed to supporting affordable housing statewide with support for nonprofits, including Haleo Hawaii on the island of Hawaii. Learn more at nayreethawaii.com. You know, as Hawaii residents reflect on this past year under the pandemic, HPR's Ku'uve Hirishi joins us with a snapshot of how COVID-19 has impacted some of the island's most remote and rural communities. Good morning, Kuvehi. Good morning, Catherine. You know, it was just around a year ago today that we were beginning to see some of our more rural communities growing concerned over the possibility of COVID-19 creeping in to their communities. And uh, I recall on Moloka'i, residents were organizing protests at the Ho'olehua airport. 
urging government officials to suspend incoming travel, annoying the limits of their island's health care system, right? So on Moloka'i, they've got one hospital to serve upwards of 7,000 residents. And so that limitation on health care access is something that has persisted throughout the pandemic. Uh, but luckily, in the end, the island tallied just 33 COVID-19 cases. Ho'olehua resident and mother of three, Kui Adolfo, spent the last year adapting to working from home while guiding her kids through virtual learning. She says the experience really brought a newfound sense of solidarity to a tight-knit Moloka'i resident. Here's Adolfo. I see that in my small community, and I also see, like, we all keeping an eye on each other, you know, coconut wireless, um, neighborhood watch style. We see things that are not of the norm. We're already talking about it. We're discussing it on Facebook. We're making it known. Everybody pretty much knows what's going on. One of the, the lingering frustrations for some in remote and rural communities like Ka'u, for example, on Hawaii Island, is the equity and resource allocations, right? So when it comes to COVID-19 tests and vaccinations and PPE, oftentimes a lot of the resources tend to focus on a more populated areas, so Hilo, Kona, areas uh, close to transportation hubs where it can easily be delivered. And so Jesse Marks, uh, the executive director of the Ka'u Rural Health Community Association, says this is an issue that's coming out of the pandemic is something she really wants to see uh, resolved. Here's Marks. We, you know, we deserve the same treatment as our counterparts in the urban cities, and, and these are the kinds of things that I have to advocate for. Why should I have to advocate? You can really hear that, the frustration in, in her voice. Marx has been a community health care worker in Ka'u for more than 20 years and has spent the last year really trying to leverage every community connection she has uh, to bring some of those resources to Pahala, to Waiohinu and Ocean View. Uh, Ka'u, the district, has got about tallied uh, 91 COVID-19 cases since the pandemic began, which is a lot, but it is spread out over a, a big, large, rugged terrain there in Ka'u, 900 square miles and some 9,000 residents, also with only one hospital. Right. So this past year under the pandemic, I think it also took a toll on on small town businesses, to local businesses in these communities uh, with the reduction in the amount of tourists coming through. These businesses have had to rely on local residents. So Ed Justice, uh, the owner of Toxbury Bookstore in Hanapepe on Kauai, says that actually turned out to be something a plus to have residents coming in to their shop during the COVID-19 pandemic is justice. We've managed to streamline the business as absolutely much as possible. We um, have been getting a lot more of our secondhand stock and uh, vintage and rare stuff on the floor. And there's been a lot more residents who've been discovering us during this time. So I'm really, in a way, I'm kind of grateful for that. It's interesting and I'm fascinated to see how the reopening will go. You know, I, I'm grateful that we got the vaccines happening, and as long as we can continue to maintain everything responsibly, then we should be able to get over this hump and get back to some normalcy. That normalcy, we'll see how that goes. Kauai has sort of maintained this health-first, tourist-later approach to its management of COVID-19 on the island. And as Justice mentioned, the county is gearing up to fully reopen to tourists come April 5th. And you talked about, you know, vaccines. You know, we heard that Kauai is lowering the eligibility of the age limits on the vaccines just because, you know, they've got doses and they want to get them into people's arms. We heard on the Big Island that they've lowered it, I think, to like 50, age 50. So, you know, there, there's a big concerted effort to try and make sure that some of these communities get vaccinated as soon as they can, particularly like, you know, remote areas too. Like, you know, you mentioned Moloka'i, and I recall the day that they started to vaccinate the residents of that remote settlement. Right. And the response from the community in wanting 
get that vaccination and move forward has been something we've been seeing in rural communities as well. Jesse Marks over in Kau had mentioned that when they had a mass vaccination clinic, they had an overwhelming response from community members who really wanted to get involved and become part of the solution uh, because vaccinations right now is, is quite possibly the biggest game changer for these communities. It'll allow them to open up uh, more safely, but also for uh, them to continue to, to be part of the community. You know, well, I think just as we reflect on this past year, it is, you know, pretty remarkable when you look to see in places like, you know, Lanai, right, where they had zero cases, uh, and then it was brought in, I think, by an exempt employee. And same thing with Kalopapa. You know, the, the settlement was shut down. That county was shut down uh, to outsiders. But, uh, you know, I think there were still folks that were allowed to go back and forth, either the postal workers or the park service workers. And, you know, somehow it got in. And, and the concern is that those areas, those rural remote areas, don't have the medical facilities that, you know, here in Honolulu, uh, residents can have access to. Right. And I I think that moving forward, uh, these communities will be looking to shore up their local healthcare workforces and finding resources to long-term invest in uh, something that will allow them to weather a future pandemic, because we know this will not be the last. No, and then as we get more doses of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine that I, I know the neighbor islands are getting, uh, I think, the first, most of the first doses because of the refrigeration issues, you know, and unfortunately we lost a number of doses there on Maui this week. So, uh, yeah, every dose is precious, and, uh, you know, we want to make sure that those high-risk uh, residents in these remote areas, uh, you know, get a chance at uh, protecting themselves. But thank you so much, Kuvehi. Thank you. We have been talking to HPR's Kuve Hirishi. Uh, to read her stories online, head to hawaiipublicradio.org. Our reality check with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat takes a look at a new power plant that Hawaiian Electric wants to build. Business reporter Stuart Yurton joins us. Hi, Stuart. Hi, Catherine. So this new plant, tell us more. What yeah. is it going to be? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so the new plant um, actually isn't a plant. It, it's a, a big battery storage facility. It's in Kapolei, and uh, it replaces a big coal-burning plant, also in Kapolei. Uh, the coal-burning plant is run by AES, it's an energy company, and it, it provides a fifth of the power uh, on Oahu. So it's a huge uh, source of our energy, and it goes offline in uh, September 2022. Now, there's been lots of uh, criticism about you know, we're still on coal, that kind of thing, and, and that uh, Hawaiian Electric should have taken, I guess, more steps to kind of uh, get us off coal. Right. Well, we are getting off coal, and that's really part of the story here. Um, the the issue that's come up before the uh, regulators, the Public Utilities Commission, is that uh, we're going off coal, and the power plant is going to be replaced with this giant battery, uh, but then the question is, what are we going to use to charge the battery? So that's one issue. So you know what we're going to use to charge the battery. <laughs> <laughs> what were they concerned about? Oil. <laughs> they're, right. They're going to use oil to charge the battery that's being used to replace the coal plant. Um, and that's not renewable energy. It's, and, and this has the Public Utilities Commission very upset the commissioner, uh, Jay Griffin, said we're going from cigarettes to crack. <laughs> okay. Right. So they're not happy about that. Making matters worse, Jay Griffin did the back of the envelope calculation, he said, and he says it's going to increase rates for consumers as well, for the short term at least. The power company, Hawaiian Electric, says no. 
uh, long term, over the life of this project, it's going to lower the energy costs. Uh, and they rebutted uh, Mr. Griffin's comments uh, saying that. They did not really dispute this idea of a shorter term increase, which is caused in part by the volatility of oil and, and other things. So oil prices can be high, it costs more. And the idea is people in the short term are going to pay more. Also, I should add, eventually the idea is the battery will be charged from renewable resources, from all these wind farms and solar farms and everything else that we're supposed to build. The, the issue is they're not going to be built yet. And that's what um, the Public Utilities Commission is concerned about. Now, I've covered those PUC meetings, and, and usually they're pretty, well, sometimes they're boring. <laughs> and so, yeah, well, you get somebody to say, yeah, we're going from coal to oil and cigarettes to crack. I mean, you're like, whoa, it's pretty strong um, uh, position on this. Right. And and that was the tone. I mean, the tone throughout, at least the end of the meeting, and we have it posted. People can see the YouTube replay. This is a virtual uh, status conference. Uh, people can see it. It's toward the end. Um, it's really pretty harsh. The Colton Ching, uh, the senior vice president who's really in charge of, of all of the uh, energy, <laughs> providing all the energy for the grid for for the for uh, Hawaiian Electric, um, what seemed to be sort of dumbfounded at the hostility uh, that he was greeted with uh, during some of these questionings. It, again, it, it, many of the comments, the the uh, cigarettes to crack comment was maybe one of the more colorful zingers from the commissioners, but it was, it was hardly the only one. They were just uh, really hammering him. So I guess the idea is Hawaiian Electric says, well, yeah, we the prices may go up initially to pay for this thing, for this plant conversion, but uh, it'll go down, but that's okay. <laughs> Well, again, remember this was approved. I mean, this is the the battery storage project was approved. The consumer advocate, which looks at prices, approved it over the long term. The they have a third party observer, independent observer, looking at these things to make sure this is appointed by the commission. They're looking at these things. So, in, in terms of the project, it it's not it it seems to be a good deal overall over the long term for the consumers. I, I think the from what I could tell, the problem is that short term, it's the only thing replacing this coal plant. And it's going to be fueled by or charged by oil short term. And there's nothing else. All of these renewable projects that are supposed to be coming online aren't. To, to, in, in Hawaiian Electric's defense, these are other entities or third parties that are building all these things, and you've still got the Public Utilities Commission that has to approve everything. So there is a regulatory process that takes a lot of time. But that's, yeah, that's the story. Yeah, I mean, I, I know, uh, you know, Hawaiian Electric has, you know, come under fire, right, by a lot of environmental groups because uh, you've got these renewable goals we've got to reach. Um, and, you know, but they don't even like, uh, you know, uh, uh, natural gas, right, liquefied natural gas. And, and so, yeah, I'm wondering how that's going to sit to go from coal to oil. Interesting. Well, we will see. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much, Stuart. Thank you, Catherine. We have been talking with business reporter Stuart Yurton uh, on our reality check. To read the full story, visit civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Dr. David Hiranaka on Hawaii Island, dedicated to providing aesthetically tailored eyelid, facelift, and rhinoplasty surgery, online at a-new-face.com. These days, community is more important than ever. One way you can stay connected is by joining HPR's Generation Listen. It's a group of younger listeners who create events for like-minded fans of public radio. Gen Listen is currently looking for leadership team candidates on all islands. If you're interested in learning more about this volunteer position, send an email to hprgenlisten at gmail.com. 
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Par Hawaii, an energy company whose more than 680 employees are committed to a culture of safety and customer service. Learn more at parhawaii.com. You know, we highlighted the state's uh, tobacco trust fund in a segment yesterday. Today, we take a closer look at a new campaign aimed to warn teens of the dangers of e-cigarettes. Take a listen to the State Department of Health's latest campaign to curb vaping among youth. Now that the world knows vape companies paid influencers to sell us some vaping, here's a few things they don't want us to know. Nicotine can rewire brains, putting us at risk for mood disorders. The toxic chemicals in vape juice can damage our lungs defenses. And vapor contains formaldehyde, a cancer-causing chemical used to preserve dead bodies. So the next time an influencer tries to sell us on this, remember what they're being paid not to say. Get more facts at escapethevapehawaii.com. You know, uh, Zahir Gukul is a junior at Island Pacific Academy. He participated in a focus group on the Escape the Vape campaign and became a teen advocate. He spoke with HPR's Jason Ubai about his experience. The first time I went there, it was me and a couple of other teens from around the island. They had a very wide diversity. And some of the things they asked was our basic understanding of vapes to see how much we all knew and what we didn't know. Then what they did was they kind of led us through, after learning that, they kind of gave us a quick talk. They ran us through all their material, like the basic, like basic stats, like how many teens um, are endangered to vaping, um, people in middle school, high school, why kids do it so often, you know, where the common differences. They also gave us more in-depth knowledge on the dangers of it, like specifically about the different chemicals. So they kind of just led us through their av- av- advertising, basically, in a very clear and concise way that gave, that gave us all either better understanding or more uh, understanding. After that, it was kind of interesting. We all sat down at a table. We were given a bunch of different photos of people. Like I think there was like six different photos, and then we were asked to like categorize them by like maybe schools, area. Do we think they vapor not just by looks and stuff? That was a really interesting experience to do with a bunch of other people. And normally it's not like that. I feel normally it's very just basic, but this one it, it got us really engaged with the topic through like they were very really oh oh open with us by showing us all, all, all the materials and showed us a couple of different like really early stages for the different commercials that we all got to get really good feedback on. And they were doing it in the way that was specific to Hawaii. And they were trying to get it as localized as possible so that it would have the greatest impact, which was very important and not just basic. Because if they, I feel like, especially in a place like Hawaii, if they were just to go in and do like what every other place does, which is they just get like very like surface level information they would just give that service level information, it wouldn't get as much traction. But because they wanted to make it so localized to our home, I feel like that's why it's having such a good as an impact as it is now, even in its early stages. Uh, what have you heard from your friends? So the friends that I've talked to recently say that they have been seeing the ads on social media through Instagram and Snapchat and stuff like that. I don't personally use it too much, so I'm just going off what they said. They said that they haven't seen the messages and all, and that's, and that's a great sign. And they hope to see more in the future. But, like, the stuff they have seen, they've been able to really understand it, and it's very simple messages, which they did, like. They don't have to, like, do extra research. They don't have to, like, go to another site. But the stuff that's posted is, like, when it's seen, it's, like, it's just clear and concise, easy to read, and in, in, um, information presented in a not totally distracting or totally annoying way. It's not, like, annoying to look at, like I see some ads are. For you... Uh, personally, what has your, been your experience with vaping um, and peer pressure? In my personal experience, I've never tried to vape, but I have been around many other friends that do vape. None of which I've been, um, none of these experiences have been around at, at or in my campus. Most times I've had these experiences are when I'm out in like secluded areas. So like um, I take part in Boy Scouts and sometimes, you know, Kids around that age have access to these things, and if we're all at like a camp or something, it's very easy for a couple of them to, you know, go sneak off to a corner in the woods, something like vape for a little bit. So I've been around people who do that, and I've been offered a couple of times. It's never been something that I've really been too interested to try. And I think the thing about vaping and, and peer pressure is it's not really something that I think kids would peer pressure about. If you were to relate this to like maybe like a drinking party or something, right? 
and how like at then in that situation it's like people want to drink like keep the party going or something like that right i don't i don't think a lot of kids see vaping as like this like thing to like get other people to do you know if anything i think kids do it in a way of like being different from other people so i think if they don't have the biggest reasons to get other kids to do it you were hearing from zahir gokul and Jason Ubai also reached out to Lola Irvin. She's with the Health Department's Chronic Disease Prevention and Health Promotion Division. For the campaign, she says, DOH presented vaping facts during focus groups, but it listened to teens like Zaheer in order to form the campaign. What we learned, too, was that the youth um, did not know um, about some of the information we shared with them in terms of um, the health consequences and when we talk to them about um, the chemical components that are in the e-cigarettes, right, the word vapor or vaping, that's a misnomer because there are chemicals that are in it, not water. It's not a water-based um, product. And so um, when we talk to them about, you know, it's got alcohol. It has vegetable oil. That's what then heats up the nicotine, and nicotine is highly addictive. Do you know what nicotine does to the brain? It has flavorants. That's the really wonderful smell you smell. Do you know what these flavorants do to your lungs? And they did not know, and they actually wanted to know. And so um, we checked in with the youth to see, are we hitting the mark? The things you said you wanted to know, do we have it? And so it was really important for us, important to get the youth input and um, to get their advice, really, in terms of are we hitting um, the information marks that they said, yeah, please tell us, please tell us. And working with these uh, with these students, what were, pe- were people's minds changed uh, from the information that you were able to provide uh, to them? Well, we did get lots of great comments from them. Like, they did not know um, in terms of the addictive nature of nicotine. And so um, they wanted us to um, put the information out there. Um, Then they also did not know about um, some of the chemicals that are in it. And so they did want to know more about it. And we did get reaction um, in terms of when we provided the scientific information we do have. And so they wanted other teens to know about it. You know, the 2019 data that just came out um, for our high school students through the Youth Risk Behavior Survey, almost a third of our high school students say they use e-cigarettes. And so it's really important to let them know this is what e-cigarettes does. And we started actually developing these messages before um, we went into um, stay-at-home orders and and then we work through it um, with youth online as we're developing the messages. And then um, became very concerned knowing that um, vaping is a very social activity. And so with COVID-19 and it's transmit, you know, it can be transmitted by sharing e-cigarettes, we're very concerned for them. Also, clean air is the best thing we can put into our lungs. And so we were very concerned about the chemicals that youth would be inhaling into their lungs. And so um, the health information that they asked of us became even more important that we include all that. Looking at that CDC data, um, I saw that only 18% of uh, Hawaii high school students have tried cigarettes uh, versus 24% nationally. So uh, it looks like there has been success with smoking cessation programs, uh, certainly with cigarettes, but as far as vaping goes, they're uh, relatively this, uh, or even higher than the national average. So what do you think the difference is? So the reason why our smoking rates are low is because we also helped adult smoking rates go down. And we know that um, youth are very price sensitive. So Hawaii has a tax of $3.20 per pack on cigarettes. What we learned from the youth is that e-cigarettes are cheaper than cigarettes. So we don't have parity in terms of regulation of e-cigarettes in Hawaii. The other thing is um, youth enjoy the flavors, the candy and fruit-flavored e-cigarettes. We do not have fruit and candy-flavored cigarettes. And um, that was part of um, the FDA actually getting regulatory um, 
authority so that fruit and candy-flavored cigarettes are not allowed, but fruit and candy-flavored e-cigarettes are allowed. And that's part of the sharing that happens, is youth will buy a pack of a variety of flavors and then share it amongst themselves. So we don't have parity with um, restricting flavored products for e-cigarettes. The other thing is um, youth are also very smart, very savvy um, with technology. And unlike before, if I was watching TV and um, my parents were watching it, we were watching the same screen and they could see what was being advertised to me. Now our youth have handheld devices called smartphones and marketers can advertise directly to them. And the parents don't know. The adults around them don't know. And so our youth are also getting these products online. And so that's also what's different between cigarettes and e-cigarettes. So these products are online and available, and the youth are very clever circumventing on the age restriction and being able to purchase them. And you can find out more about this campaign at escapethevapehi.com. You know, tomorrow is Prince Kuhio Day, a state holiday commemorating the royal who was born on March 26, 1871. He was the youngest son of David Piikoi and Esther Kekaulike, born in Koloa, Kauai, and named after his grandfathers, Jonah Piikoi, High Chief of Kauai, and Kuhio Kalani Aneole, a High Chief of Hilo. The young royal was orphaned at a young age, which resulted in his mother's childless sister, Queen Kapiolani, choosing to hanai her youngest nephew, giving him the title of royal prince. He was given a royal education and is remembered in history books for his participation in the Wilcox Rebellion. After the uprising failed, the prince was imprisoned for almost a year, and his spirits were raised by regular visits from his fiancée, who brought him food and sang songs to break his isolation. Uh, just after he was released, Prince Jonah Kuhio married his fiancée, Elizabeth Kahanu, in 1896 in the St. Andrew's Cathedral. Congratulations to our winner today, Brandon Holland of Kaimuki. You got it right. And that's today's quiz. We're back with the conversation. And you know, any time is a good time to talk about chocolate. And HBR's Noe Tanigawa joins us this morning to do just that. Good morning. Hey, good morning, Catherine. I mean, we're talking this time chocolate on a mission. It's a gourmet shop in Chinatown. I mean, you know, I go to Chinatown all the time, but it, it took me years to even see the door. Good luck finding it. I mean, it's kind of mashed in there with all right next to a lay shop and and inside the river of life building on mauna kea street at pawahi and davy tevis runs it she's been volunteering at river of life mission since it started in 1987 she's now director of chocolate <laughs> they call themselves a christ-based organization serving the homeless and near homeless now, Davy's held a lot of various positions, but a friend giving up a chocolate business, her own interest, of course, in chocolate, and a lot mm -hmm. of encouragement from others. In 2011, she launched this gourmet fine chocolate income stream for River of Life. And by their third year, Davy said they pulled in $200,000. You know, the community has been very outpouring to us and very helpful. We had men and women in houses, and it was an 18-month program. So it's very difficult to get them a job. So we thought, 
why don't we open a chocolate factory? You can get a lot of skills here because we sell and then we have someone that has to run the showroom. We have our POS system, which is Shopify, and then we have Inflow, which is our inventory, which all has to be upkept. So there's a lot of different ways that people can learn things up here. Yeah, they're looking for interns right now, in fact. Um, who want to learn about a small business and maybe get school credit for it. Right now, the whole operation is being run by five people and the one interest they've recently found. Despite the volume of business, things have been really up and down over the years, and the pandemic flattened them. Davey said they did do some gift boxes and stuff for Christmas, but it was nothing like last year. But what's happening now is that River of Life has a new executive director since the beginning of this year. And they're going to take a swing at relaunching the whole chocolate thing. Mm. It's super fun to visit the showroom. Catherine, can you imagine this right in Chinatown? You know, I've heard about this program, but I've never had a chance to poke my head in there. You know, <laughs> Well, there's a phone number uh, right on the door, and you have to call it. And then they can, you know, take you on up. They'll take anybody up during their hours, which is like pretty much office hours during the day. What kind of chocolate do you like, Kevin? I like dark chocolate. Okay. You know how it goes up to like the 80s, 90s percent? Well, they've got really intense uh, chocolate like that. They also, however, do their chocolate blend. And it's a dark chocolate, milk chocolate blend that is much more toward the dark chocolate end. I think it's something a lot of people really would like. I thought it was pretty good. The chocolates are designed here. Uh, They're formulated by this small batch chocolates here on the continent, and then they're packaged here and so they do retail wholesale private label kind of stuff they do you know with your own messaging they do fundraising a lot of executive like gift packs and even chocolate subscriptions Hmm. and the flavors you know they really are kind of unique Okay, I have Anna Sakadraka, and she has over 26 years of experience as a chocolate uh, worker, and she has an immaculate palette for chocolate. So, for example, one of the first things I showed her, I love sweet and savory, so we took our chocolate blend, and I told her to put yakowarari and furukake. It's awesome. And the reason it's awesome, because she makes every flavor that you can taste it, but not one is overwhelming. We also do a minty matcha with white chocolate. Minty matcha? Yeah, clever. (laughs) Another one I got was whole mac nuts dipped in chocolate, this sort of a dark chocolate blend. It was really stunning looking. But the whole purpose is to support the services for homeless and needy. I mean, River of Life started in 1987. It was an emergency meal service. And if you look at the organization, I mean, it's been 30 years they've evolved. Now they give out clothing, and they're thinking about um, expanding services as well. I mean, as it is, River of Life gives out nearly 1,000 meals a day to people who come to their doors right there on Pawahi Street. And I understand that some merchants, even I've heard that some police, you know, just people from the area do go there and pick up meals. Some nearby businesses and residents say that That service, however, does bring crowds, screaming, fighting, drugs, trash, and loitering into the neighborhood. River of Life contends the people were there already. Larger missions would bring them everybody in and have them seated, and we just can't do that. So they have to wait out in line, but we've changed it so they're six feet apart, and they can only be there a few minutes before we open. Yeah. Yeah. The problem people have is where they go with their meal afterward. Correct. Yeah, and we always encourage them to throw it in the right place, but they don't always do it. Yeah. You know, don't we? I do recall that uh, I think it was former Mayor Kirk Caldwell uh, announcing before he left office that River of Life was going to move from downtown Chinatown. That so, is not a done deal. What happens to the chocolate <laughs> company then if, if that happens? Uh, the chocolate company will continue because River of Life Mission owns the building, the chocolate factories in there, right at the corner, that pivotal corner on Hawaii and Mauna Kea. That's the reason that um, city officials, starting from the end of the Caldwell administration, started really pushing to have just their meal service moved out to Evie Lay, where they are, where they have a city building going, a four-story building of city resources right next to the uh, IHS Men's Shelter on Sumner Street. There are some church and state separation questions that they're currently trying to work out. That has been the sticking point right now. 
you know, Davy said she's got commitment from the current, the new pastor, that the chocolate factory will go forward. And she says she's not afraid to walk around in Chinatown, in spite of what you see on Chinatown Watch. I mean, I checked Chinatown Watch this week. Their photos are video of drinking, drug use, trespass. I mean, public indecency is up there. There's one video showing someone allegedly flipping out. Um, this is the group that monitors and allows people to post Chinatown incidents. And um, Orange Schleeman, owner of Infographic, with his wife, friend, Butera, created the website. He owns a building right across River of Life. He spent 30 years in Chinatown working in the area and says with this administration, his hopes are up. Yeah, the city owns 40% of Chinatown's property. And when you add in the parks and the streets and the sidewalk, they're probably like 80% owner of the place. And the question I have is like public buildings are held in public trust by the government for the benefit of uh, the people, which would be us. But they don't take care of their buildings. They don't police the neighborhood. They don't clean up the thing. To be fair, Kekaulike Mall is a lot better than it was. But the only reason that changed is because of the citizens kept pestering City Hall. And it's kind of funny, you know, the new mayor comes out of media. They did some work down here and there was no press and people were going, oh, what's happening? To their credit, they're, they're, they're starting. As far as tactics, mm-hmm. what have you seen work down there? Well, nothing, to be honest. The thing is, Oren says, no one has tried a comprehensive approach. But what he's thinking now is some kind of coalition that can run from River Street to Richard Street and really bring downtown and Chinatown up together. Thanks so much, Noe. I'll have to go down and hey, check out that you. chocolate place. We've been talking to Noe Tanigawa. To read her stories, head to hawaiipublicradio.org. That's our show for today. We will be talking taxes tomorrow. It's a call-in. Have something you want to sound off about? Uh, call or talk back line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org or join us live. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.